following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. So I'm trying to uh, use a new hardware setup here. So I'm kind of experimenting with stuff. So hopefully that'll go okay. And I'll remember to advance my slides and everything. We'll see what we can do. All right. Very good. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly, Chris. What could go wrong? Okay, so... Hi. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving week last week. Mine was interesting. And uh, there's been a, 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 a deal of sickness in my household over the past week and a half, which I'm still kind of struggling with. But... I should be all right here tonight, and uh, I'm eager to stay on track with the Wizard of Earthsea and uh, uh, to complete. I still want to complete our discussion before the end of the calendar year, so that's still my goal, and we will see how we can do. So first, let me just start off with a couple quick announcements. Um, uh, so one thing that is coming up soon. We have a, a new Signum Symposium that's happening in a couple weeks. Uh, on the December 21st, um, we're going to have a Ghost Stories for the Winter Solstice reading and discussion. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to, uh, we'll have an event page up for that soon, but just keep that, keep that in mind. That'll be a fun time uh, on December 21st. Um, we also have, I wanted to draw your attention to the call for, uh, for presentations or, you know, proposals for papers, presentations, all the P's uh, in CFP, um, uh, for TechSmoot. So TechSmoot is going to be on the first Saturday of February this coming year down in Houston this year as we continue rotating around the state of Texas. Uh, we've gone from Fort Worth to Waco and now down to Houston this coming year. Um, so, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm looking forward to being down there, and especially since our own Trish Lambert uh, is going to be giving the keynote address uh, at TechSmooth this year. So uh, I'm especially excited uh, to go down and, and listen to Trish again. So anyhow, so uh, but the call for papers is up, and uh, there's uh, I think there's still a few more weeks that they're accepting um, proposals. So definitely wanted to draw your attention to that if you're interested in going to TechSmoot and might want to participate. Um, and uh, oh yeah, last thing. So we're going to have uh, another new show on our Signum Twitch channel pretty soon. Uh, Wes Schantz is going to be starting a new program from the Signum Academy. So it's going to be a program which is focused on, uh, well, it's focused on, on on kids, but really for anybody, it'll be discussions of books that I know will uh, uh, will be dear to, to to many of us, I'm sure. Um, but of course, it's uh, it's uh, especially designed to uh, engage kids in in discussion of books. So I hope that you will uh, uh, be able to join us for that. That's going to start in January, so coming up soon. Okay. And wow. Hey, Luke is here. Hey, Luke. Yeah. Luke is just commenting on how long it's been since he's attended live. Yeah, I noticed, Luke. That's fantastic. Welcome. Um, excellent. Um, okay. So, very good. Those are my announcements for tonight. Um, so, let us get back into A Wizard of Earthsea. So, um, we, we just finished two weeks ago. 
Uh, we just finished with uh, uh, Ged getting his face bitten off, or most of it bitten off, and then resuscitated uh, by the Archmage, who then dies very soon after that. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna resume there at the tail end uh, of chapter four, and you're gonna be amazed at how much progress we're gonna make tonight. So after he recovers, of course, he's you know he it's it's interesting. One of the things that I think is is really fascinating uh, that Le Guin does there, Jasper, who of course is a complete fixation. Like from literally from the day he arrives at Roke, um, he just gets like completely obsessed with competing with Jasper. Even when, uh, as we were seeing, Jasper is not actually that horrible to him. Um, you know, he's pretty aggressive at the end, um, on the day of the challenge. Um, but you know, it, um, it, you know, trying to look at it objectively, it's kind of hard to think that Jasper is really sort of the bad guy in that whole exchange, right? Um, but um, anyhow, so despite the fact that Jasper was, the, uh, you know, uh, the complete fixation of get he vanishes, right? And not just vanishes from Roke, right? Completely vanishes from the narrative. I mean... Is there any evidence that he's given Jasper, like, a second thought uh, since then? I mean, he almost never even comes up in reflection, right, after that. Uh, and that, I think, is really interesting and a, a really interesting testimony to the way in which, uh, again, just yet another way in which Le Guin succeeds in sort of conveying something without having to explain it to us, right? We know that the whole rivalry with Jasper now seems empty and pointless to get, right? She doesn't have to tell us that. She makes us feel that, right? By the way in which Jasper immediately falls into absolute irrelevancy uh, as soon as the attack occurs. Um, he does ask Vetch about him later. You're right. There there are one or two references. But again, it's I was particularly struck by this um, in just a glance ahead to, you know, tonight's assigned reading, uh, in chapter seven, uh, when he meets the beautiful woman, uh, his beautiful hostess, uh, and the narrator remarks that Ged had not been in the company of a beautiful woman, you know, a beautiful, well-dressed woman ever since that one night. And of course, the thing that made that night so memorable an occasion for him at the time was that was the time when, you know, Jasper makes this big flashy illusion and everybody's praising Jasper and Ged is like gnawing his tongue with frustrated envy, right? Um, and yet, so like he can, he thinks back to that event, but doesn't think about Jasper at all, right? Um, yeah, so... um Anyway, it's it's. I only just bring that up as as again to for me another example of uh, the wonderful delicacy of Le Guin's touch there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah, and Luke, I agree. It is an interesting commentary on the nature of those kinds of rivalries and the way that we grow out of them as we change. Uh, and of course, you know, Geddes had a a, a you know, a very sudden uh, spurt of growth as far as as far as that's concerned and a very sudden change uh, to, to himself and his own um, uh, his own sense of of uh, priorities, essentially. Um, OK. So let's uh, 
let's resume. So we, we, we saw him being resuscitated uh, last time. And then we knew that the Archmage died soon after that. And of course, is, uh, the new Archmage is voted in. Um, hang on a second. I gotta... So I'm still moving windows around. I got to figure out how I'm doing things here. Okay. All right. I think this works. Okay. So... here's Ged trying to figure out what to do afterwards when he finally recovers, right? Um, this is him talking to the new Archmage. What do you want? To stay? To learn? To undo the evil? Nemerly himself could not do that. No, I would not let you go from Roke. Nothing protects you but the power of the masters here and the defenses laid upon this island that keep the creatures of evil away. If you left now, the thing you loosed would find you at once and enter into you and possess you. You would be no man but a gebeth, a puppet doing the will of that evil shadow which you raised up into the sunlight. You must stay here until you gain strength and wisdom enough to defend yourself from it, if ever you do. Even now it waits for you. Assuredly, it waits for you. Have you seen it since that night? In dreams, Lord. After a while, Ged went on, speaking with pain and shame. Lord Gensher, I do not know what it was, the thing that came out of the spell and cleaved to me. Nor do I know. It has no name. You have great power inborn in you, and you used that power wrongly to work a spell over which you had no control, not knowing how that spell affects the balance of light and dark, life and death, good and evil. And you were moved to do this by pride and by hate, is it any wonder the result was ruin? You summoned a spirit from the dead, but with it came one of the powers of unlife. Uncalled, it came from a place where there are no names. Evil, it wills to work evil through you. The power you had to call it gives it power over you. You are connected. It is the shadow of your arrogance, the shadow of your ignorance, the shadow you cast. Has a shadow a name? Okay, we learn a lot here uh, in uh, in these couple uh, paragraphs, uh, David. I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think that Gebeth. Uh, I'm not familiar with that word from anywhere else. Um, I think that's a, an Earthsea word. Um, if anybody else knows otherwise, I'd be happy to learn it. But I don't remember ever encountering that term. I know it kind of sounds like something that should be... Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I suppose it's um, it's sort of a tribute, I guess, if it is her invention. But um, it does sound uh, uh, Hebrew, Sharon, but I don't remember encountering it anywhere. Um, uh, oh, man. If Noam were here, he could... No, wait, Noam is here. Yeah, hey, Noam. Is Gebeth a Hebrew word? It does sound Hebrew, but I, uh, uh, but I don't know. And it's not Hebrew? Okay, Noam says it's not. So uh, I was going to say, wait a second. I think, we have, I think we have somebody from Israel here. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, it's not Hebrew. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, I think it's... Um, so yeah, I think that that's an Earthsea word. Um, and what he says about it, what, how we're introduced to that concept, the concept of the Gebeth here... It is a puppet doing the will of that evil shadow which you raised up into the sunlight. Um, so it is possible for a person to be 
possessed, and the, perp- the, 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 the person would then just become a puppet of the shadow. So that's what the Archmage tells Ged here. And we're not given any more information about exactly what that word means or what that exactly what um, what happens. Okay, good. Other people doing searches, uh, places, and it looks like uh, the only places people are finding it is Le Guin. So, okay, I think that, that, it, that uh, our initial... Researches uh, seem to suggest that Gebeth is indeed uh, an invented word here. Okay. Um, I love the phrase, that evil shadow which you raised up into the sunlight, right? Um, the idea of raising a shadow up into the sunlight, not a shadow, you know, cast by the sunlight, um, but a shadow which is brought into the light, um, not in order to extinguish the shadow, right? But in order to darken the sunlight, in order to to displace the sunlight, the kind of violation uh, of the natural order, of the natural balance of light and darkness, right? That that, uh, that, that creates. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating... Uh, it's a fascinating phrase there. Um, Christopher says this is one of the most sophisticated embodiments of evil I've ever read about. It is really interesting, right? On the one hand, I mean, there are two things that are sort of independently insisted upon by the story about the shadow, right? One is that it is independent, right? That is, this is, this is a creature. This is an evil thing that has been called up, um, it is, uh, you know, he calls it, uh, what is he, where, where it's very uncalled. It came from a place where there are no names. Can I just say, look, I, I mean, I've said this before, but isn't Le Guin's prose amazing? I mean, how many times when you're reading Le Guin, can you just pick a random sentence out of a paragraph, right? Or we just, just like pick a random sentence and it sounds like just like an amazing, a quotable quote, right? I mean, like, uncalled, it came from a place where there are no names. I mean, dang, that is so good. But anyway, um, so it comes from another place, right? It is, it is, it is alien. It's, 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 it's wrong that it should be here, like a shadow going around in in the middle of the bright light. That that shouldn't be, right? But it has been called uh, somewhere else, right? It it is a creature of power. It's a creature of unlife, he calls it, right? Um, let's see, where is... That? Yes. Uh, you summoned a spirit from the dead, but with it came one of the powers of unlife. Notice it's a power. Capital capital P. Right? Um, and remember when we were looking, when we were thinking about arts and powers before. Right? This is a power. This is one of the powers. This is not a, you know, the power that people have. This is an independent power, which is should not have the kind of access to our world that it has. It is wrong that this shadow should be on the loose, out in the sunlight, the way that it is. Right? It has crossed over um, uh, from that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's interesting. Um, uh, Luke is thinking about how Gebeth 
uh, is at least sort of visually, sort of suggestively linked with Ged's own name, right? Um, yeah, yeah, you know, like it's the uh, the third person singular indicative verb ending, right? Almost, right? B's instead of D's, but uh, but it's it's uh, it's almost like that. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it is a power from outside, a power of unlife. This it's called, comes from a place where there are no names, right? And that is something kind of abominable, right? Something that is contrary to everything that Get has been taught about the world, right? Um, there's something deeply wrong about this thing. So on the one hand, it's all those things. It's completely, it's completely alien. But it's also connected to him, right? It's independent, it's separate, but it's also not, right? It is also, as Genscher tells him, um, it is the shadow of your arrogance, the shadow of your ignorance, the shadow you cast. It is a consequence of his actions, and it's much more complicated than simply, like, the action he performed summoned this creature, and so now this creature's here, so it's his fault, right? I mean, yeah, that's true, but it's much more than that, right? Um, as he says, the power you had to call it gives it power over you. You are connected. The power you had to call it gives it power over you. And now we know, and we're going to, when we're going to see, people are going to begin to talk about this. We've been looking at how shadows have been connected to Ged from the beginning, right? Even from the day of his naming, um, there were shadows flittering around as he crossed the stream to receive his name. Um, and, you know, the ship, of course, that he rode on was the shadow, uh, was shadow, um, there have been shadows and echoes of shadows all over the, from before this moment when he called it into the world, right? Um, even before the moment when he kind of called it um, into Ogion's study, or almost called it, or nearly called it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and exactly, David, the... the, the things that lack a name would be uniquely dangerous to wizards because it means they can't exert power over it. And that, of course, is going to be Ged's primary source of helplessness, right? As he is going to... It's not just that he has not yet learned its name, it's that he he suspects it has no name um, and therefore is not subject to the power that a wizard can wield over it. Um... Now, Karita, that's a really good question. Um, she says, if a big part of this is about balance, light and dark, etc., why do his motives matter? Um, I, I, so what Genscher tells him is that he says, you used your power wrongly. What exactly does that mean? Okay. To work a spell over which you had no control not knowing how that spell affects the balance of light and dark, life and death, good and evil. So it's not just that the spell that he uttered was an evil spell. 
It's not that. Or at least it's not quite that simple, right? It's not just that he performed a wicked deed. His motives, Karita, do seem to... So there, there, there are two things, right? The first thing there that Genscher emphasizes is that um, he did this in ignorance and without control. Um, he did not know how the casting of this spell would affect the equilibrium, would affect the great balance. And remember, we were told back when we were learning about magic in chapter one and chapter two, that this is like the defining thing about wizards. What it means to be a wizard is to know and to serve, remember, to serve equilibrium, to serve the balance, um, to make sure that what you remember the quest, the answer to Ged's initial questions about why can't I just take this pebble and, and change it into a diamond? Wouldn't that be better than just making an illusion of a diamond? Um, and he was told by the master, by, well, that was the master hand, right, that he was talking to, who said, like, look, you can't just go doing that, right? There are consequences to these things, and we have to, and before you work this kind of magic, you have to understand. Um, and, uh, and yet, Arthur, um, that is, uh, um, his motivation was also wrong as well. Right. Nancy says this is why they're careful about who gets into Roke. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, so so again, part of it is the fact that he he unleashed this carelessly, thoughtlessly, without any of the kind of understanding that a wizard is sworn to use, right, to have, um, to employ. Um, but there's more than that. Right. Um, he goes on to work a spell over which you had no control and not knowing how that spell affects the balance of light and dark, life and death, good and evil. And you were moved to do this by pride and hate. Is it any wonder that the result was ruin? Right. Um, so the motivation does seem to matter. Um, and so I understand, Karita, it might seem like the first part is that's the big deal. Right. If he's upsetting the equilibrium, that's a big deal. But um I guess on the one hand you could say, well, if an action upsets the equilibrium, does the motivation really matter? Right? I mean, like the same action is going to upset the equilibrium, uh, you know, the same amount, right? No matter what you were thinking when you did the action necessarily. Um, and that is possible. But at the same time, I think at the very least, um, it sort of, first of all, like the degree to which the action is out of whack with equilibrium was strongly influenced by the fact that he was motivated by um, um, uh, by pride and hate. Um, but yeah, I, Karina, I, your, your question is a really good one. I don't think I can answer it perfectly because I don't think I understand yet myself. Um, I am trying to put myself into the sort of metaphysical system that's being put forward within this book. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's, it's one that is alien to me in a lot of ways. It's not just about objective good and objective evil. The idea of the balance, affecting the balance of light and dark, life and death, good and evil, that there should be a balance between good and evil, um, that is different. That is different. Um, uh, certainly different from, like, Tolkien's worldview, right? Um, 
uh, different from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, and so, anyway, something that I find uh, hard to understand, and I'm trying to understand it, so I'm not sure I can answer it perfectly. Um, it would be enough, uh, you know, from within a Judeo-Christian framework, it would be enough to say, like, the, motivation, like the motivations of, the, of his action, whether, even if he did a good action for the reasons that he did, that would undermine it. Right, that would that would taint the action. Um, it's less clear to me how this works within the equilibrium. Um, so, Karita, what I do with that then is I just kind of I take that as a data point. Right, I'm going to accept Genscher's words that he probably knows what he's talking about. He was voted in Archmage after all, and probably knows a thing or two. Um, but um, uh, but then, you know, as we move forward, we may get some more ways to uh, uh, to understand this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, exactly. Bookmarking it for later is exactly what we're doing. Um, yeah, okay, so... Yeah, Stephen, good. Asking another question I don't think I can answer. It says, so is it correct to say that sh the shadow, death, and even evil are not bad unless they're unbalanced? Would this mean that it would also be bad if good were in unbalanced abundance? Well, Stephen, all I can say is the talk of equilibrium makes it sound that way, right? That, like, an overabundance of good would be a disruption, in some sense. But in what sense? And I don't really know. And maybe that's not a right understanding of it, right? But um, but good and evil are being spoken of as being in balance with each other in some way and in some sense. But I don't, I'm not sure I understand uh, that sense exactly. Uh, so it's one of the things that I'm going to be looking to learn uh, as we go through. Exactly, Kit. The equilibrium itself is seems to be the highest good. That is the good. Remember, it is the equilibrium, the main, the maintaining of the equilibrium, uh, that the wizards are sworn to serve, right? And which, of course, Ged has not has uh, thrown out of whack, right, uh, by his action. At the very least, what his motivations. So one of the relevance of his motivations has to be. If this guy, right, if this Prentice, because he's still Apprentice when he does it, if this Prentice is going to do that, right, I mean, if he's going to make such uh, a major disruption uh, to the balance of light and darkness with such flagrant disregard for the consequence of his actions, being motivated by, you know, by pride and hate, um, if pride and hate run so strong in this guy that they're going to drive him to act like that. They're going to overcome his judgment uh, in that way. This guy is not good wizard, uh, 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 you know, material, right? At the very least. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Good. Yes. Okay, great. Sorry, I'm just looking at a few comments. Most people are, uh, um, most people seem to be in agreement. Okay, good. Um, let's keep going.
So Ged, of course, changes through all the latter part of his studies after his recovery. He is no longer quick because he seems scared to learn, right? He's no longer progressing at this really rapid pace. He's not competing with anybody. Um, he's not seeking glory. Um, he has this one really important encounter, right, uh, which is with Vetch, uh, when Vetch, before Vetch leaves. Vetch, of course, is ahead of him, uh, and school always was, and so he leaves to take on his first wizardly duty first. And Vetch tells him his true name. At that, Ged lifted his scarred face, meeting his friend's eyes. Estario, he said. My name is Ged. Then quietly they bade each other farewell, and Vetch turned and went down the stone hallway and left Roke. Ged stood still a while, like one who has received great news and must enlarge his spirit to receive it. It was a, gr it was a great gift that Vetch had given him, the knowledge of his true name. No one knows a man's true name but himself and his namer. He may choose at length to tell it to his brother, or his wife, or his friend, yet even those few will never use it where any third person may hear it. In front of other people they will, like other people, call him by his use name, his nickname, such a name as Sparrowhawk, and Vetch, and Ogion, which means Furcone. If plain men hide their true name from all but a few they love and trust utterly, so much more must wizardly men, being more dangerous and more endangered. Who knows a man's name holds that man's life in his keeping. Thus to Ged, who had lost faith in himself, Vetch had given that gift only a friend can give, the proof of unshaken, unshakable trust. The act of faith that Vetch shows in Ged is really inspiring, right? Um, oh, and, and oh, Chris, I totally agree. Um, another wonderful uh, Le Guin sentence there. Um, let me see if I can find it again. Where did it go? Uh, the business about it enlarging his spirit. Um, uh, that, um, as Christopher says, uh, you know that that uh, it was a, a great gift and that he would enlarge his spirit to receive it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's. Um, it's amazing. Um, but, um, but anyway, this is an act of faith, right? Um, everybody, everybody has lost faith in Ged. The Archmage doesn't trust him. The Archmage won't even take his fealty at first, right? Which is a pretty bad sign. Uh, uh he does eventually take his fealty when he comes up for Sorcerer, right? Um, but, um, uh, but the Archmage won't take his fealty. Uh, the, the, you know, Ged himself has lost faith in himself, right? And then here, uh, out of nowhere, right? Without provocation, without further... I mean, Vetch was there, right? Vetch saw what Ged did and saw the result of Ged's action and didn't even, like... Hasn't even hasn't even spoken to him since then. This is the first time I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the first time they've met after that, and yet his response to that 
Vetch's response to his friend's horrible mistake and his friend's terrible suffering as a consequence, Vetch's response is to place this kind of trust, right? To put his life in Ged's hands. Um, and that is uh, kind of amazing. Kind of amazing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Kit says for the first time he has a peer. Yeah, I mean, he's had... He had Ogion before, right, who is a master and a kindly master. Um, but yet this is the first time he's had, well, really any kind of friend that we've seen. Um, but yeah, this is, a, this is a really big deal. Um, and you're right, David, he was the only one of Ged's peers to try to intervene during the disaster. He did put his life on the line for Ged, um, which is a good reason for Ged to trust him, right? Um, it's less clear why he would trust Ged, right? Um, but again, but I mean, you're absolutely right that him giving Ged his name, it is in line with what he's done. It's not out of nowhere for Vetch to do this, right? I mean, this is the, the ultimate expression of exactly the kind of friend that Vetch has been to him from the beginning. Um, but although it may be like the actions he's taken before, it is much further along and totally unprovoked, right? Okay. As he's finishing his studies, he's trying to figure out what the shadow is and what he can do now. From the masters and from ancient lore books, Ged learned what he could about such beings as this shadow he had loosed. Little was there to learn. No such creature was described or spoken of directly. There were at best hints here and there in the old books of things that might be like the Shadow Beast. It was not a ghost of human man, nor was it a creature of the old powers of Earth, and yet it seemed it might have some link with these. In the matter of the dragons, which Ged read very closely, there was a tale of an ancient dragon lord who had come under the sway of one of the old powers, a speaking stone that lay on a far northern land. At the stone's command, said the book, he did speak to raise up a dead spirit out of the realm of the dead, but his wizardry being bent awry by the stone's will, there came with the dead spirit also a thing not summoned, which did devour him out from within, and in his shape walked, destroying men. But the book did not say what the thing was, nor did it tell the end of the tale. Okay, so... This does seem to be a precedent. I mean, this sounds like the kind of thing, right? This is the this, this is the hottest lead that that Ged has, right? Um, that uh, the, when this dude called up a spirit of the dead and some other spirit came with it that devoured him and walked about in his shape, made him a Gebeth like he was warned uh, by Gensher he would become if the shadow caught him. Um, so that seems likely. And notice that it's connected to the old powers of the earth. Um, now we are hearing much more about these powers, capital P, that were only hinted at at the very beginning, right? And it seemed, as I was suspecting when we first came across those references, that there exist 
powers, right? These old things, these old creatures, beings of the earth, which have power um, and can give power or exert power over others. Um, but um, it sounds kind of sketchy, and this one sounds particularly sketchy, right? So there's some old power of the earth, and it's connected with a stone, right? Um, yeah, there's a speaking stone that lay in a far northern land, and one of the old powers got control of the guy through that. And so, but so it's connected with the old power. But it's not just a creature of the old power. The, 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 the shadow creature itself is separate from the old power, right? It was only the old power controlled the guy, the wizard, the dragon lord, who summoned up a spirit of the dead and then brought in the, the shadow with it, right? So, okay. Right. It's exactly like Cthulhu, Kate, as far as I understand. That's exactly what's going on here. Um... Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, not exactly like, but, you know, not wholly dissimilar. I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, yes, Devora, I do suspect we should recall the details of this particular story of the ancient dragon lord, because that might become relevant sooner rather than later. Um, and Bruce, I agree. The capitalization of old seems to be important, right? Um, uh, it does suggest that this is not just, you know... There are, you know, powers that are current and powers that are outdated, right? And this is one of the outdated ones. No, old powers, capital O, capital P, seems to be a different category itself. And like Leobot, I agree, um, uh, this is a dragon lord, right? Someone who has mastered a dragon, that's a big deal. Um, and so they're likely a very powerful wizard who was mastered um, and consumed and made into a gebeth. Uh, by this shadow. So uh, that's kind of sobering. Um, at this point, we don't yet know exactly what a dragon lord is, but again, it seems like a big deal, no matter what, right? Soon we're going to find out more about dragons um, and dragon lords. Okay. Arthur asks Is summoning the dead always associated with a shadow dude showing up? <laughs> well, whenever Ged does it, it is. And apparently when that guy did it, too. But notice, in the story that he's reading here about this ancient dragon lord, there's, um, the implication is that, so when he, at the prompting of the old power, right? So the dragon lord first comes under the sway of the old power. And then while under the sway of the old power... Uh, he, at its command, spoke to raise up a dead spirit out of the realm of the dead. But another spirit, another thing not summoned came with it because his wizardry, right, but his wizardry being bent awry by the stone's will, right? So there was something wrong about his wizardry that led to the wrongness, which was the other thing being summoned up and eating him, right? Um, so his wizardry was twisted. So how I take that, Bruce, is that therefore... Wait, no, was that you who asked that? Um, uh, no, Arthur, that was you. Um, so Arthur, 
the implication to me is you can summon up a spirit of the dead. Like this doesn't always happen when you, this isn't just like, you know, like one of those, um, one of those things that they would have to say as like a known side effect, right. In like a TV commercial <laughs> or something, right. No, known side effects include summing up shadow beasts that might try to eat your face. Um, that's, that's, I think not the point, right. Again, the, the old dragon Lord, only did that, only only summoned up, only conjured up the unsummoned thing um, that ate his face because his wizardry was bent awry. Yet bent his own wizardry awry, right? And Karita, I wonder, does this suggest that that's where his motivations come in, right? Because, so it's, it isn't just that if you don't know what you're doing, you can mess up the equilibrium, right? You can perform an action, which itself might be a totally, like, legit action, but it, but you haven't thought through the consequences. You're too ignorant to know what the consequences are. So you do this thing meaning no harm, right? But you're, you don't know enough, and so, you know, the equilibrium is thrown off because of it. It's not just that, right? Um, because that isn't what happened. His wizardry was Ged's wizardry was bent awry by his motivations, by the fact that he was doing this out of hatred and pride. Um, and thus, the whole thing not just had bad consequences, but was capital W wrong from the very beginning, right? And therefore, the disruption of the equilibrium by that spell that he was casting was inevitable, Again, not just because he hadn't insufficiently calculated those consequences or considered those consequences, um, but because the thing that he was doing was intrinsically out of touch with, uh, with the balance, with the equilibrium. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, and good, good. Um, yeah, Arthur is citing, uh, Nancy from the, uh, discussion room that, um, uh, the concept of a Gebeth seems to exist in this world, right? Uh, it's not an unknown idea. And so there has to be some kind of precedent for this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and James uh, Stevens, you're right that the first time he read out the spell for the summoning of the dead, summoning the, of the spirits of the dead, not really knowing what he was reading, um, his motivations for that were kind of messed up too, right? He was just trying to prove himself uh, to that random half-witch girl, as you say, James. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, good. Uh, Jocelyn was pointing out uh, the same thing. Um, uh, that through the, his manipulation uh, by the sorceress's daughter uh, there back in Gaunt, um, his wizardry was already being bent awry in that whole, in that whole process. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Okay, good. 
All right. Let's keep going. So, Ged finally does set out to start his career. And the most important thing about his starting off is that he's leaving Roke. And remember, he was told by Gensher that when he was in Roke, he was going to be like, he wasn't going to send him out. He was going to let him leave Roke. Because while he's in Roke, he is protected by the spells which protect Roke from evil things. So the shadow can't get to him while he's in Roke. So even his departure from Roke is an, is a, an important step, right? Um, because he is making himself vulnerable, potentially, to the shadow. He is stepping out and not yet confronting the shadow, but risking the shadow, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jocelyn, you're right. That whole train, we're going to we're going to follow that. Probably not this week. We'll probably get to that next week. But, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, I didn't even read the passage yet. So Ged's first job, first assignment. So the Isle Men of Low Torning had sent to Roke begging for a wizard to protect their folk from what boded over the western horizon, and the Archmage had judged their fear well-founded. And of course, their fear is of the dragon. So there's this big dragon that lives on the Isle of Pender, and apparently there's a whole bunch of other dragons, right? There's like eight baby dragons also hanging out, and they're starting to grow up and cast longing eyes towards the cattle and herds uh, of the of the, the men of Low Torning. So... Um, they're a little worried that there are going to be some serious dragon incursions in this area soon, so they ask for a wizard to come help, and Ged gets the nod here. There is no comfort in this place, the Archmage had said to Ged on the day he made him wizard. No fame, no wealth, and maybe no risk. Will you go? Because, see, that's the thing. The dragon might come, and it might not, right? Or they might not come in, their, in this lifetime, right? Uh, it's possible. It's not. It's not no risk, but it's um, um, it's low risk at least. Um, yeah, I will go. Ged had replied, not from obedience only. Since the night on Roke Knoll, his desire had turned as much against fame and display as once it had been set on them. Always now he doubted his strength and dreaded the trial of his power. Yet also the talk of dragons drew him with a great curiosity. In Gaunt there had have been no dragons for many hundred years, and no dragon would ever fly within scent or sight or spell of Roke, so that there they so that there also they are a matter of tales and songs only, things sung of but not seen. Ged had learned all he could of dragons at the school, but it is one thing to read about dragons, and another to meet them. The chance lay bright before him, and heartily he answered, I will go. What do we learn about Ged and his state here? On the one hand, he is as much against fame and display as once uh, his desire had been set on them, right? So, what has happened? Is Ged more humble now? He had a serious pride problem that we saw before, right? Um, has he been cured of his pride problem? Is he humble now? 
What do you think? What do we think about this? Yeah, too soon to tell, I agree. Okay. Um, definitely more timid, Devora. Yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy says, not sure he's humbled, but he is terrified. Um, yeah, First Fish says he's not cured, but he sort of started down the road. Uh, several of you agree that he's scared, definitely. Um, uh, Luke thinks that he is not humble, but rather abashed. Um, yeah, and Noam, I agree with you. I was thinking that exact same thing, that uh, he his focus is still on fame, right? I, I think that we can see that. Um, his desire had turned as much against fame and display as once it had been set on them. Why? Always now he doubted his strength and dreaded the trial of his power. Um, if you don't brag anymore because you no longer think you can execute, that's not necessarily humility, right? Um, it could be your lack of boasting could now be due to your pride because you don't want to be exposed as being unwilling to do what you what you could do before. I'm not trying to just put a negative spin on it, um, but I definitely, I, you know, he is, I do agree with many, all, all of you who are saying that he is, um, seems to be starting down the road towards serious change, Right. Uh, maybe he's he's moving down the path towards humility, but he isn't there yet. Yeah, fear and self-doubt seem to be the primary things. He has been, remember, he, he was slower at his studies, not because he got dumber, right? Not because his talent was less, but because he was afraid to exert his power. He didn't want to do it. He's afraid of its consequences. He's afraid of... Uh, uh, you know, of what he can do or what he'd be able to do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. As likely about says, uh, um, behind his humility seems to be pride, not wanting to be made a fool again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Um, as Luke is suggesting the kind of going to the opposite extreme seems to suggest that he's not yet really found his own equilibrium. Absolutely. Um, yeah, as Kit says, he seems to have learned not humility, but the imposter syndrome, which is not the same thing. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. And again, many of you are saying he still needs time. Absolutely. Not trying to not trying to cast any permanent judgments on Ged, just trying to understand where he is, right? Because um, that seems important. The, his desire for knowledge and his great curiosity about dragons, um, that doesn't sound very alarming to me. I don't know. Um,
you know that from the beginning, as we've been discussing the book, I've been concerned about Ged's motivations, right? Like from the first time he uttered the first spell with the goats and began studying with his aunt, it's been, um, you know, this kind of ongoing set of like questionable motivations. Remember the way in which his bad motivations and his aunt's bad motivations were like in competition with each other and everything. Um, but, um, so almost everything get has done, especially, you know, think about his reaction to his non lessons with Ogion and all that. Right. Um, everything has been questionable to me from the beginning. This doesn't seem, uh, this doesn't strike me. This doesn't appear that way to me. Um, this doesn't set off any alarm bells for me. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not seeing the red flags here. Um, his curiosity, his interest in dragons seems to me kind of natural and not tainted with the same kind of, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to show that I'm going to, I'm going to be the, you know, show that I'm the greatest wizard ever. Like I can totally go up against a dragon. It doesn't, it may be still tainted with that, but it's not, our attention is not being drawn to that in the same way. Right. Um, all that we're hearing about is curiosity how he's been interested to read about dragons, has always loved the stories of dragons, has never been near a dragon, right? There are no dragons in Gaunt. There are no dragons can come uh, near Roke. Um, so again, I don't know whether it's necessarily good or bad, but the, the mere fact that it's absent any obvious red flags seems to me kind of good. Um, yeah, David, exactly. It does strike me as a, a combination of youthful and scholarly curiosity. Um, agreed. Yeah, as Christopher says, his eagerness to learn used to be about gaining power. His curiosity about the dragons is not about himself. Um, uh, or at least we can come to that conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. Um, so, where does he go next? Well, we're going to get to the Isle of Pender and his encounter with the dragon. But first, he has another really important encounter, right? Another really important moment. And that is his little um, foray into the land of the dead, right? Uh, when he is trying to save his friend Petchvery's son. Summoning his... So, so he's holding the body of the dying child in his arms, right? Summoning his power all at once and with no thought for himself, he sent his spirit out after the child's spirit, to bring it back home. He called the child's name, Ioeth. Thinking some faint answer came in his inward hearing, he pursued, calling once more. Then he saw the little boy running fast and far ahead of him, down a dark slope, the side of some vast hill. There was no sound. The stars above the hill were no stars his eyes had ever seen, yet he knew the constellations by name, the sheaf, the door, the one who turns, the tree. They were those stars that do not set, that are not paled by the coming of any day. He had followed the dying child too far. Knowing this, he found himself alone on the dark hillside. It was hard to turn back, very hard. He turned slowly. Slowly he set one foot forward to climb back up the hill, and then the other. Step by step he went, each step willed, and each step was harder than the last. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, sorry, I did. Um, um, I did skip the master doorkeeper, Arthur. Uh, oh, you. <laughs> that's, that's Arthur says, master doorkeeper is the archmage, right? The mage of arches, right? Yeah, uh, I get it. Um, yeah, good. Brian, I agree. The the with no thought for himself does seem a very important change. That's certainly one of the things that really jumped out at me here. Um, he is motivated by pity for his friend and his friend's wife. Um, there is that moment when, you know, he's like, his first instinct when he weighs his hands on the child is that this child is dying, right? I, I can't, this child, is, it's, it's too late. This child can't be saved. Um, and, um, he, but then he hears his friend Petrie's assurances, right, of how, you know, his friend Sparrowhawk will certainly uh, save the child. Um, but um, so it's foolish of him to do what he does. But it's not just in response to his friend's words. He's not just trying to prove himself to his friend. He's not trying to, what, like, protect his reputation or enhance his reputation or anything like that. Um, the thing that causes him to summon his power all at once with no thought for himself uh, is, like, this sudden, like, the child is suddenly dying in his arms, right? He feels that... This is like the last possible second. Indeed, as we see, it's past the last possible second. Um, and uh, But Jocelyn, yes, I agree um, that uh, he does seem to be still making something like the same mistake. Um, Jocelyn asks, is, is this something that should be done? You know, what about the equilibrium, the balance between the living and the dead? The Master Hewer probably told him for a reason that you don't um, you don't try to stop the spirit that is departing, right? Um, but, Kit, I do agree. This does seem to be in the category of showing how much he's willing to do for a friend. Um, uh, and, Devora, I agree. We also don't see horrible consequences of this. So maybe, Karita, maybe this actually gives us a really interesting indication Right. Thinking back to your earlier question, you could argue that both times he both of these two major spells, right, when he is trying to uh, bring back the spirit of the child from the land of the dead and when he was trying to summon up uh, the spirit of the long dead legendary lady uh, whose name begins with elf, but I forget the rest of it. Elfara, is it? Anyway, whatever. Um, both of those times, Karita, you could say he seems to be doing something that's at least ill-advised, right? Um, but once, it has horrible consequences. And the second time, it doesn't have horrible consequences. I mean, he's in a stupor for a long time, but he recovers. And apart from, you know, his friend and his friend's wife's disappointment about the death of their child, um, there are no terrible consequences. Elfaran, thank you. 
there's no terrible consequences of the um, um, the the this action here. So, Karita, I wonder if this itself is illustrating the the difference that his motivations make. His motivations here might not be 100% pure. Um, I suspect there still is some pride in this. That part, yes, he wants to help his friend. Yes, he's certainly feeling compassion for his friend. The way that it's set up, I feel like we're invited to also think that he's he's also ashamed to say to his friend, having just heard his friend say, Sparrowhawk can't do it, nobody can, right? Don't worry, he's in good hands now. You know, surely Sparrowhawk will save him. I think that he's ashamed to turn to his friend Petfury and say, uh, yeah, sorry, no can do. It's not going to happen. Right after Petfury has said that. So I don't think there's zero pride involved, but... <clears throat> But I do think that his motivations are extremely um, are extremely different, right? Um, and therefore, it seems that the consequences um, the consequences are therefore not nearly as bad, right? Um, well, let's look at the other consequence, though. The stars did not move. No wind blew over the dry, steep ground. In all the vast kingdom of the darkness, only he moved, slowly, climbing. He came to the top of the hill and saw the low wall of stones there. But across the wall, facing him, there was a shadow. The shadow did not have the shape of man or beast. It was shapeless, scarcely to be seen, but it whispered at him, though there were no words in its whispering, and it reached out towards him and it stood on the side of the living, and he on the side of the dead. Either he must go down the hill into the desert lands and lightless cities of the dead, or he must step back, step across the wall, back into life, where the formless evil thing waited for him. His spirit staff was in his hand, and he raised it high. With that motion, strength came into him. As he made to leap the low wall of stone straight at the shadow, the staff burned suddenly white, a blinding light in that dim place. He leaped, felt himself fall, and saw no more. Oh, sorry. Didn't advance the slide. My fault. Um, yes, James, just like Ogeon's staff. When Ogeon comes into the dark room where he's reading in the dark and reciting the spell and the shadow is by the door and Ogeon comes in with the light and the darkness, right? Only in darkness the light. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. First fish carry, I think. Um, I had forgotten about that, but you're right. There is a parallel. It does remind me of the, uh, shoot, which one was it? Which Old Testament prophet was it with the with the boy that he resurrected? Was that Elisha or Elijah? I think it was Elisha with the S-H. I think it was. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, yeah, the little, the, the widow's boy uh, that he resurrects. Yeah, except <laughs> Elisha succeeds, right? Uh, and Ged does not. Um 
I um, I have I have to admit that I think that that I hadn't thought of it explicitly, but I feel now that that parallel was in the back of my mind, and one of the reasons why. I always expect him to succeed, <laughs> right? Uh, because like, it feels like it's something that should be happening, um, but um, but he doesn't. Um, yeah. Um, Devora asks if Ogion went to this place when he healed Get as a child. Uh, I think he called his spirit back from here, but I don't think he went. Um, Devorah, uh, what it was making me think remember after he fails to save the child he is in a trance just like he was back in his village right um, so I'm suspecting that in some sense his spirit came wandered down here into the deadlands or like on, along the boundary of it or something, right? And had to be called back by Ogion. And that's why Ogion could just very, you know, he very swiftly called him back. The fact that Ogion himself did not go into a trance suggests that Ogion did not go wandering, right? Uh, remember the description of how hard it was to trudge back uh, uphill, right? Um, how much will it took for him to go back and how, how he str was struggling every step. Those struggles towards the stone wall uh, seem to me to be like the part of the, the like coma that he's in afterwards, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. So, um, but I love this image. It was shapeless, scarcely to be seen, but it whispered at him, though there were no words in the whispering, and it reached out towards him, and it stood on the side of the living, and he on the side of the dead balance right balance um but it's wrong right it's a wrong it's an inversion of the correct equilibrium that that there's a living guy on the dead side and like an unlife thing not a dead thing but an unlife thing on the living side right um this is not just like a nifty counterbalance. This is not just an acceptable exchange that sets everything right. This is doubly wrong uh, if he let it be. Um, both of them are symmetrically out of place. How balanced this is, um, is the thing that I find so striking, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, And Devorah, I agree. The stone wall is an interesting image, too. Um, 
I also would have expected something like a stream of running water or something like that. That's a very common border between life and death, um, even if it's only a small stream. Um, uh, that's a very traditional boundary. Um, a low stone wall is interesting. It suggests the... Uh, um, it suggests durability, and yet, I mean, it's more of a marker of the boundary than a barrier, right? I mean, you can jump over a stone wall. It's not that hard. Uh, it's a low wall of stones, um, which he's preparing to leap over. Um, I mean, I'm, I live in New England. I'm familiar with low stone walls. Uh, but, um, yeah, exactly, Nancy. It does emphasize that it's not a real barrier of any kind in Gnome. Exactly. It's man-made. That's the other thing I was thinking about the stone wall, too. Um, it's not like a stream is a natural, would be a natural barrier, right? This is not a natural barrier. This is an, this is an unnatural barrier. Um, is it meant to suggest or be connected to something like um, something like gravestones? Possibly. I mean, to at least recall, uh, you know, are stones associated with graves in Earthsea? I don't know if we, I don't know if we know that yet, but, um, yeah, yeah, um, Yeah, so I'm not sure I understand the full significance of the the stone wall that separates life and death, but um, but I also certainly found that interesting. And we do get... Mark, I think it was you who were saying this before. Um, he does get a little hint here, right? The question, he's, he has two options as he's confronting the shadow, which is standing on the other side of the wall. If he runs away from the shadow, he runs off into the land of death. He's never coming back, right? He's going to be lost. But the only other option is to run straight towards the shadow. And it does seem that here in this vision, in this experience, a spiritual experience that he has um, on the other side of this boundary, um, he seems to be given a picture of his actual situation, right? Um, if he... But it's going to take him a little longer to figure that out, in fact. Um, but I agree. I think we do get a, a, good, uh, a good sense of that here. Um, yeah, good. Um, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Both Matthew and Nancy are thinking about um, the wall in the dispossessed as well. Um, yeah, you're right. Le Guin does like walls, Nancy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Thinking about the wall, the boundary, the easy to cross boundary there at the beginning of uh of the dispossessed. 
though there it's more of a political boundary, right? But still a boundary between two worlds. Yeah, interesting. Does the wall, uh, does it wall you in or out, James? Exactly. Yeah, that could be as relevant a question here as it is in the dispossessed. Are you being locked out or are you being locked in, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's um, let's move on to the dragon, and then we'll think more about the shadow. So he fights the baby dragons and what kills five of them and wounds the sixth, um, easily overcoming the first three. Right, who are dive bombing him, and he just binds their wings, makes them miss, and they crash into the water and drown. Right. Um, uh, and uh, then he changes form and defeats uh, the later ones, right? Um, and then calls out the big one. When he was all afoot, his scaled head, spike-crowned and triple-tongued, rose higher than the broken tower's height, and his taloned forefeet rested on the rubble of the town below. His scales were gray-black, catching the daylight like broken stone. Lean as a hound he was, and huge as a hill, Ged stared in awe. There was no song or tale could prepare the mind for this sight. Almost he stared into the dragon's eyes and was caught, for one cannot look into a dragon's eyes. He glanced away from the oily green gaze that watched him, and held up before him his staff, that looked now like a splinter, like a twig. Eight sons I had, little wizard, said the great dry voice of the dragon. Five died, one dies, enough. You will not win my horde by killing them. I do not want your horde. The yellow smoke hissed from the dragon's nostrils. That was his laughter. Okay. Um, yeah, Nancy says that uh, Ged's suspicion that reading about dragons was different from meeting them turns out to be true, right? Absolutely. Um, the dragon is huge, thin, Right, the dragons are not. Uh, they seem to be relatively serpentine. Right, um, lean as a hound. He is described. Um, I'm not sure how to picture triple tongued exactly. I mean, I guess he can have three tongues. Don't fully understand how that would work, but um, it's interesting, of course. Because, yeah, it, maybe Stephen says maybe it's like a forked tongue, but he's got like a like a like a trident forked tongue. Yeah, exactly. Stephen just thinking the same thing. Maybe, maybe that's what he's thinking. Um, uh, that seems most likely. He can't have three separate tongues. Um, uh, but of course, it's a significant detail uh, because of the 
the pun, right, because of the, 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 the play on tongue, as, of course, the language of dragons is super important, right? The old speech is the speech of languages, of, of, of dragons. And I love the... Um, I love the detail about how dragons can lie. Like, wizard, you, you can't lie in the old speech, but dragons can, right? Humans can't do it. So wizards can speak the old speech, but they can't lie in it. It's impossible. Uh, but dragons can lie in it. Um, yeah, yeah. But the the idea that his tongue is not only forked, but more than forked, right? Unusually forked, um, extraordinarily forked, uh, is certainly a little tip uh, to the lying and deceitful uh, tongue of the dragon, right? Um, the tongues of dragons are super important, right? Their association with lying and, um, and with power, too. Uh, the power of their words and the power of their speech. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Glaurung does hint in that direction too, Arthur, you're right. Um, the dragon begins by assuming that Ged is after his horde. And notice how he continues to try to entrap him with his horde uh, even later on, right? When he masters him, um, when he gives his name, um, he tries to pay him, he invites him to take eight stones from his horde. Um, and it's unclear exactly what will happen if he does take eight stones from his horde. Um, but Ged refuses, and it certainly seems... Um, it, it certainly seems right for him to refuse. Um, there were, presumably, there would have been bad uh, consequences to that. Um, and Brian, I do agree that... Greed itself, like desire for wealth, never seemed to make a, a significant part of Ged's makeup before, even when he was full of questionable motivations earlier on. Um, but his interaction with the dragon of Pendor does seem to suggest a kind of humility in him. Why does he do it? Why does Ged go attack the dragon? Why does he seek the dragon out? Do you remember why he decides to go? I mean, his job was to hang out in Low Torning in case the dragon were to come, right? Yeah, he wants to leave, and he does want to make sure that they're safe. But it's not only that. Remember, he says he's afraid to... If the dragon... If the, you know, the shadow could come any day, but so could the dragon. Right? He's confronted by two potential threats on either side of him. And he definitely wants to run away from the one. Right? His best way to avoid the shadow, he thinks, is to keep moving, and the shadow's going to gonna find him soon, right, if he stays. Um, 
but he, he also does say that like he, he doesn't want to get caught between the shadow and the dragon, right? So the best thing to do is uh, let's um, let's cross the dragon off the list, right? Let's go. Right, the shadow hasn't found me yet, so I still have time. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go take care of the dragon right now, and then I can just be free to focus on the one enemy, right? Um, it is like he sees the dragon as the lesser of the two evils, the lesser of the two dangers, in any case, uh, to himself. Um, and that's... The, like, workaday expediency with which he sets out to undertake this amazing action... Um, seems to me to suggest a pretty significant change before, too. Um, and even perhaps to undermine... Uh, going back for a minute. Always now he doubted his strength and dreaded the trial of his power. Right? Um, he was turned as much against fame and display as once it had been set upon them um, because he doubted his strength and dreaded the trial of his power. That seems to be different now, right? This is not the action of somebody who dreads a trial of his power, right? He is hurrying to a trial of his power, to the greatest trial his power has ever seen. One-on-one -on -one confrontation with this ancient dragon, right? Um, in order to, like, get past it and get moving, right? And that strikes me as something that really begins to to change, right? Um, that is, this seems to be, that seems to be one of the most humble things that he's done before, and likely about I agree. He's seen death now, right? Um, his confrontation with the shadow in his, you know, across the stone wall um, is, uh, does seem to kind of set up this, this decision, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Christopher, I agree. It's, it's like patch the net, recock the boat, master the dragon. Yeah, it's you know, it's 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 like he's gonna, just going to add it to his to do list for the next couple of days, right? Um, but without um, without ceremony, without announcement, without even it seems over much concern about his ability to execute, right? Like a sword in sharpness, but five times the length of any sword, the point of the dragon's tail arched up scorpion-wise over his mailed back, above the tower. Dryly he spoke. I strike no bargains. I take. What have you to offer that I cannot take from you when I like? Safety. Your safety. Swear that you will never fly eastward of Pendor, and I will swear to leave you unharmed. A grating sound came from the dragon's throat like the noise of an avalanche far off, stones falling among mountains. Fire danced along his three-forked tongue. Ah, there we go. He raised himself up higher, looming over the ruins. You offer me safety? You threaten me? With what? With your name, you vowed. Ged's voice shook as he spoke the name, yet he spoke it clear and loud. At the sound of it, the old dragon held still, utterly still. A minute went by, and another, and then Ged, standing there in his rocking chip of a boat, smiled. 
I think that this is the first time this scene is the first time in the entire book when I really like Ged. Um, his handling of this on the one hand, so it's um, tempting to say that yes, he's defeating the dragon, but he's cheating, right? It's a little tempting to say that he's cheating. Like, it's just, it's not like, you know, it's his wizardry against the dragon's power and his wizardry turns out to be the mightier. It's just that he read its name once and guessed that that name that he read, was that he that this was that dragon, right? Um, yeah, true. To an extent, that's true. But n- nobody else has done that, right? Um, and... Uh, He, yeah, the, uh, um, Catriona says this Ged realizes that it's not necessarily required to win. Um, yeah, yeah. And you're right, Mark. He wasn't sure that he knew the right name. He had a guess as to what its name was. Um, but, um. Uh, but I agree. He's beating Yavoud at his own game. He is out. He is out, cunning in the dragon, right? Um, <laughs> as t- as David Attlee says, uh, it's like going against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, what have you to offer that I cannot take from you when I like? Your safety uh, is an awesome answer to that question. Swear that you'll never fly eastward, and I swear to leave you unharmed. Um, uh, that takes guts to say to a dragon uh, in this situation. Um, and that's uh, really, uh, really pretty awesome. Um, uh and good, Brian says that it's telling that the dragon never seems to consider the possibility that Ged had anything with which to threaten him. Knowing a dragon's name does not seem a common form of cheating. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. He, um, uh, it might seem like a, like he's just done, like, again, like he's cheated, like he's just done an end around on this problem, right? Um, but, but no, like that's, this is, this is like how it works, right? He found out the name of that dragon and uh, and and used it against him. And also remember, it's like the words aren't just words. Um, Ged's voice shook as he spoke the name, yet he spoke it clear and loud. Um, I'm remembering also the charm against goats, right? That... Um, how surprised his aunt was that it worked the first time he said it, not even knowing what it did. Right. Um, there's knowing the name and there's being able to use the name to master the dragon. I'm not sure that anybody who read that book would be able to waltz in here and manage this. Um, 
Yeah, and Mark, absolutely, finding true names is the chief skill of all of the wizards in Earthsea. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and learning names from other wizards who have gone before is not cheating. It's called learning. It's called studying. It's it's part of like being a wizard of rogue, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, oh, Luke, I agree. I love that phrase. Um, and then Ged, standing there in his rocking chip of a boat, smiled. Um, the emphasis of how small and pitiful and weak he is compared to this dragon taller than the tower, right? His, uh, like a sword in sharpness, but five times the length of any sword, the point of the dragon's tail arched up scorpion-wise over his mailed back. Um... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, we, we learned on page one that Ged was a dragon lord, right? Uh, and now we see him mastering a dragon and suddenly getting famous, right? So he's going to take off. He's going to leave. But first he's got to go back and make sure to tell them that they don't have to worry. That he solved their little dragon problem. First, however, he must come to Low Torning once more and tell his tale to the Islemen. When word went out that he had returned five days from his setting forth, they and half the people of the township came rowing and running together to gather round him and stare at him and listen. He told his tale, and one man said, But who saw this wonder of dragons slain and dragons baffled? What if he... Be still, the head Isleman said roughly, for he knew, as did most of them that a wizard may have subtle ways of telling the truth and may keep the truth to himself, but that if he says a thing is, if he says a thing, the thing is as he says, for that is his mastery. The mastery of a wizard is in naming things truly. Therefore, lying, putting a false name on things, uh, is anathema, to the entire mastery of the wizard. So it isn't that like there's some rule which keeps wizards from lying or that wizards have taken an oath, they take an oath not to lie. It is clean contrary to what they do. It is, it is contrary to their mastery. Wizards don't lie. Though they may have subtle ways of telling the truth. Sorry. Thank you for reminding me to uh, change the slide. So they wondered, and began to feel that their fear was lifted from them, and then they began to rejoice. They pressed round their young wizard and asked for the tale again. More islanders came and asked for it again. By nightfall he no longer had to tell it. They could do it for him. Better. Already the village chanters had fitted it to an old tune, and were singing the song of the Sparrowhawk. Okay. Um... Yeah, and Brian, presumably this does apply to wizards, but not necessarily to sorcerers and spellwrights and village witches. Absolutely, yeah, 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 agreed. Um, this is the mastery of wizards. One of the things that is really striking to me here is that this, this, this is what young Ged wanted, Right? This is what young Dooney wanted before he was Ged. This kind of fame, to, to do a deed that would be made into a song, right? 
that people would go along and and that like the the word of his deed would be going before him and he would become one of the you know famousest of all the wizards right that's what he wanted right that kind of glory was precisely what he sought that seems to be why he grudged jasper right because jasper seemed to have you know jasper both seemed to have um respect that he Sparrowhawk wasn't given and also refused to give to get the 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 respect that he felt that he deserved um yeah yeah um Yeah. Oh, James, good. That's a good point. James Leback points out that I skipped the bit, which is an important moment, um, that uh, the dragon offers to tell him the name of the shadow, right? Offers to help him against his enemy, um, but he refuses because it was not his own life that he bargained for. Um, I agree with you, James. That is an important piece of evidence of growing humility in him, right? He he does genuinely put others before himself here. Um now, his seeking out the dragon in the first place is still all about, like, come on, let's get this over with so I can get to my, to my appointment somewhere else, so I can start running uh, from the shadow. But I agree, it's a major temptation, and he resists that major temptation in part because he's thinking of others and not uh, willing to sort of sell that out. Um, yeah, good. I agree. Anyway, but the, the simple point I was making here is that here is the fulfillment of all of his childhood dreams, and yet he doesn't care. He barely even notices. He has the one night of happiness, Brian, and I agree that that's important. You know, he celebrates and he is not... Um, um, he's not fearing the shadow on that night, right? But... Um, he doesn't stay to um, um, he doesn't stay to glory in it he wasn't seeking this he doesn't even take pride in it now that he has it um, he immediately leaves it behind uh, and we will see within this scope of this one chapter right here in chapter 6 um, he goes from having the song of his deeds spreading from one island to another, you know, out before him as he travels, uh, to hiring himself out as an oarsman, right, as a galley slave uh, for the ship to take him to Oskil, right? Uh, when, you know, nothing he can offer is respected or valued, uh, and no money that he has given to him by the, the men of low Torning. Right uh, is worth anything, right? Um, and none of that stuff seems to bother him anymore. The, the, these are the things which seem to me to show most clearly that his priorities really have, uh, really have changed. And I agree, Devorah. Although he does celebrate with them and is really happy. Uh, in that celebration that evening, as you say, he didn't come back so that he could celebrate, and certainly not so that he could brag. He's just finishing the job. He wants to. He wants them to know that they don't have to worry anymore, right? Um, 
don't fear the dragon because it's not coming back. Um, yeah. Um, Luke, I agree. The definite article or the second definite article in the song is a little strange. The song of the Sparrowhawk. Uh, Luke is saying, why was it? Why isn't it just the song of Sparrowhawk? Right. Um, I suspect it's the song of the Sparrowhawk because it's like they're using his name sort of metaphorically, associating it with the Sparrowhawk after which he is named, right? Um, my suspicion is that uh, <laughs> James says maybe it scans with that old tune better. Possibly. Possibly. Um, my suspicion here is that this is a little glimpse into Earthsea culture in that everybody knows Sparrowhawk's not his real name, right? I mean, that's that's his name of use, his use name, right? Everybody knows that. So um, calling him the Sparrowhawk, like, you don't have to call him Sparrowhawk like it's his name, because it's not his name and everybody knows that, right? Uh, so referring to him as the Sparrowhawk, right, as if he is metaphorically that thing after which he's named, um, uh, seems to be kind of a, I don't know, like an acknowledgement of that fact. Like, it's not... It doesn't have to be used as his name, because it isn't his name. I don't know, I'm not explaining this very well. It, it, they're using it more like a title. Um, and, and I, yeah, Kate, I do get the sense that they're using it metaphorically. Um, Kate says there's a lot of good imagery with the Sparrowhawk fighting the dragon, uh, and that's just what I'm thinking, too. Um, taking advantage of the fact that his use name is Sparrowhawk, um, they are... Uh, is the song about a sparrowhawk which puts to flight, you know, the uh, uh, the dragon? That seems um, that seems very very possible. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and it does have a more legendary sound to it, David. Um, he's not just sparrowhawk. He's the Sparrowhawk. <laughs> right? Not just a Sparrowhawk. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's keep going. Just a few more minutes here. In his wanderings, he meets a random dude who gives him some friendly advice. Um, looking at this kind of wizardly-looking fellow right? Who's definitely not a rogue wizard, but there's something kind of wizardly about him, right? Um, Ged first gets a little spooked and he puts his staff out in between himself and the other guy. Mildly, the man asked, what do you fear? What follows behind me? So, but I'm not your shadow. Ged stood silent. He knew that indeed this man, whatever he was, was not what he feared. He was no shadow or ghost or Gebeth creature. Amidst the dry silence and shadowiness that had come over the world, he even kept a voice and some solidity. He put back his hood now. He had a strange, seamed, bald head, a lined face. Though age had not sounded in his voice, he looked to be an old man. "'I do not know you,' said the man in grey. "'Yet I think perhaps we do not meet by chance. I heard a tale once of a young man, a scarred man, who won through darkness to great dominion, even to kingship.' I do not know if that is your tale, but I will tell you this. Go to the court of the Terranon if you need a sword to fight shadows with. 
a staff of yew wood will not serve your need. Hope and mistrust struggled in Ged's mind as he listened. A wizardly man soon learns that few indeed of his meetings are chance ones, be they for good or for ill. All right. So this seems legit. Um, so this guy seems to know something about his shadow, but he's a wizardly chap, right? Uh, and admits to being a mage of some kind or other, right? He's not a rogue wizard, but, uh, you know, he's trained elsewhere other than rogue. So, you know, let's not be narrow-minded, right? Um, and Ged knows that... Um, a wizardly man soon learns that few indeed of his meetings are chance ones, be they for good or for ill. So, it's probably not just a coincidence that he met this guy, but is that good or is that bad, right? That's, um, that's unclear. And he's offering him help. A sword to fight shadows with. That sounds helpful. Go to the court of the Terranon, Okay. A staff of you wood will not serve your need. Okay. So, Ged does not think that this is just chance. But he doesn't know if it's good or if it's ill. Right? There's definitely a conspiracy of some kind going on here, but maybe it's, maybe it's a good kind. So then he rows on the ship, right? Uh, and uh, meets Skior, one of the other rowers, who offers to show him to the court of the Terranon. The Otak stirred in his pocket, and a little vague fear also awoke and stirred in his mind. He forced himself to speak. Darkness comes and snow. How far, Skior? After a pause, the other answered without turning. Not far. But his voice sounded not like a man's voice, but like a beast, hoarse and lipless, that tries to speak. I don't know how to say things liplessly. Ged stopped. All around stretched empty hills in the late dusk night. Sparse snow whirled a little falling. Skior, he said, and the other halted and turned. There was no face under the peaked hood. Before Ged could speak, spell, or summon power, the Gebeth spoke, saying in its hoarse voice, Ged. Then the young man could work no transformation, but was locked in his true being, and must face the Gebeth, thus defenseless. Nor could he summon any help in this alien land, where nothing and no one was known to him, and would come at his call. He stood alone, with nothing between him and his enemy but the staff of Yewwood in his right hand. Skior is a great name, Brian. I agree. Um, and yeah, Nancy, this is absolutely really creepy. Um, so, okay. Uh, notice the restriction on his power that the saying of his name gives, right? There are two things that he can do with his power which would be helpful, right? One would be to be able to transform himself, um, either to fight it or to flee it. The other would be to summon something, 
right? To bring something to him, like he used to summon this, the, the falcon or something, like to summon something, but he doesn't know it. He's in a strange land and doesn't know the names of anything around him, right? He can't summon them, so he can't... It sounds like he is made, in, made incapable of transforming himself by the utterance of his name. The implication that I get is that if he, like, if he were standing in Roke right now, he probably could summon help. Um, so the, the, it's not that the gibbets, the shadow saying his name, uh, makes him incapable of using magic of any kind. What it does is it locks him in his tube. He can't transform. So that whole branch of magic is, uh, is removed from him. Right. Um, he could scream for help. Noam agreed. Uh, but, uh, but of course, uh, he has, with dubious wisdom, followed this guy who was already pretty sketchy looking out um, um, out into the midst of nowhere, far from help, right? Out, out, out in the wild, far from help, right? As he puts it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's nothing but the staff of Ewood in his right hand. That is, like, as a beating stick, not as a wizard's staff, even, anymore, right? The Gebeth has completely consumed Skior, right? His voice is completely gone. It doesn't sound like, oh, it does not sound like his voice. It doesn't even sound like a man's voice. Uh, and when he turns, he has no face at all. Now we, we see more about the Gebeth right after. The thing that had devoured Skior's mind and possessed his flesh made the body take a step towards Ged, and the arms come, came groping out towards him. A rage of horror filled Ged, and he swung up and brought down his staff, whistling on the hood that hid the shadow face. Hood and cloak collapsed down nearly to the ground under that fierce blow, as if there was nothing in them but wind, and then writhing and flapping stood up again. The body of a Gebeth has been drained of true substance and is something like a shell or a vapor in the form of a man, an unreal flesh, clothing the shadow which is real. So jerking and billowing as if blown on the wind, the shadow spread its arms and came at Ged, trying to get hold of him as, as it had held him on Roke Knoll. And if it did, it would cast aside the husk of Skior and enter into Ged, devouring him out from within, owning him, which was its whole desire. Ged struck at it again with his heavy smoking staff, beating it off, but it came again, and he struck again, and then dropped the staff that blazed and smoldered, burning his hand. He backed away, then all at once turned and ran. Yes, uh, several of you are thinking about the similarities between the Gebeth and the ring wraiths, um, that would be a really interesting discussion. Um, what a good moot paper that would make. Gosh. Uh, so somebody should submit to the text moot call for papers a proposal to do a comparison of Gebeths in Earthsea and wraiths in Middle-earth, because that would be a really interesting discussion. Not only the ring wraiths, but think about the Barrow Whites as well. Um, that also would be an interesting comparison. So, yeah, 
lots of really interesting material for comparison there. Um, so he whaps it on the head with his staff, right? Um, and knocks it down the cloak. Hood and cloak collapsed down nearly to the ground. Not quite to the ground, right? Under that fierce blow. So it's not just that he hits it and there's nothing inside and so the cloak collapse, collapses. It's like it's filled with wind, right? It goes down, but then it pops, it goes down almost to the ground and then pops up again, writhing and flapping, right? It's drained of true substance. It's a shell or a vapor in the form of man. So it gets like crushed down, right? And then, what, I don't know, inflates again because the only thing anymore that is real about it is the shadow itself. And he, I mean, the, the interesting thing to me is that he can even whack it, right? Um, that, it, that it works at all. Is this something, does that tell us something about the Gebeth or does it tell us something about his staff? Perhaps his staff, which is burning, right? Burning even his hand, his, his staff is smoking. And then it blazes and smolders, burning his hand as he hits it again. Um, why is his staff burning? I'm not really, I'm not really sure, right? Um, I mean, this is his wizard staff. The staff which was, I mean, this seems to me to kind of correspond to, remember it was only his staff that was between him and the shadow before when he was holding it up and it was, and it was shining with the brilliant white light, just like Ogeon's staff uh, as well. Um, now the staff is lighting up again, but it's lighting up with fire, which seems like a kind of perverse, almost like a reversal, right, of, uh, uh, of his... Uh, the 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 white light shining from his staff before. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marcus saying if if only he had been a hobbit or a woman, his blow might have had more effect. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, yeah, and Arthur is also thinking that uh, his it's only it only burns after he whacks the gebeth. So apparently, all staffs perish that whack the deadly gebeth. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, Devorah, I also wonder, had he not been wearing the cloak, the Gebeth, had it not been still wearing the cloak, um, would the staff have just passed through it? I'm not sure. That seems possible. Um, an unreal flesh clothing the shadow, which is real. I'm just thinking about the phrase, unreal flesh, right? Like what that means even. Not completely sure. Okay. Last slide, and we're done. It's been up there the whole time. Okay. Night thickened about the hunter and the hunted, and snow blew fine across the path that Ged could no longer see. The pulse hammered in his eyes. The breath burned in his throat. He was no longer really running, but stumbling and staggering ahead, and yet the tireless pursuer seemed unable to catch up, coming always just behind him. 
It had begun to whisper and mumble at him, calling to him, and he knew that all his life that whispering had been in his ears, just under the threshold of hearing, had been in his—sorry, but now he could—sorry—but uh, now he could hear it, and he must yield, he must give in, he must stop. Yet he labored on, struggling up a long, dim slope. He thought there was a light somewhere before him, and he thought he heard a voice in front of him, above him somewhere, calling, Come, come. Okay, so we, um, we can hear the recapitulation of the scene in the Land of the Dead before, right? When he was trudging uphill, remember? Um, once again, He's laboring on, struggling up a long, dim slope, right? Now the land about him is like the land of the dead. He's once again uh, in that same place, right? So that parallel is really clear. This time the shadow's behind him, not in front of him, right? But this time we get this... Um, um, this time we get this uh, emphasis on the whispering, on the sound, Right? Um, there was the sound of whispering before that he couldn't quite hear when he confronted the shadow in the land of the dead. I assume that when the narrator says, and he knew that all his life that whispering had been in his ears just under the threshold of hearing. On the one hand, this sounds like hyperbole in the sense of um, how he... Um, he's, he's, you know, he's running and he's in this state where he feels like he's been doing this like, as long as he can remember, right? Um, like, time is dilating around him. But I think that that might be literally true as well. Has the shadow been calling to him his whole life? He called to the shadow. The archmage said, back in the first slide we looked at today, that there was a connection between them. His power, Ged's power, which called the shadow, has created a connection between the two of them. Um... But um, has the shadow been connected to him even before that? Is there a reason he was able to summon shadows which were uh, audible and, and vaguely visible in the fog um, when he was thwarting the Kargish warriors in attacking his village when he was a child? Um, yeah. Uh, Karita says she's not sure why, but she finds the word mumbling much more scary in this context than the word whisper. Um, yeah, yeah, to whisper and mumble at him, I agree. Probably because it has no lips, Karita, so that's why. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something very unsettling, she says, about the idea of an evil mumbling voice. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um And something especially unsettling to him about the fact that he can now hear it, right? It was just under the threshold of hearing, but now he could hear it. He must yield. He must give in. He must stop, right? Um, but he outruns it. He gets away. It has his name. It can bind him in his true form, though it has no true flesh, right? Um, 
it has only unreal flesh, and it wants to devour him, and it's always behind him, but it doesn't catch him. It can't catch him, and he doesn't give in, and he doesn't stop, just as he succeeded in exerting the will that was required to work his way back up the hill and jump over the low stone wall uh, that formed the boundary between death and life. So here, too, he continues to run and thus escapes, right? Um, yeah, James points out that the shadow in Ogion's house was whispering to him, too. Yeah, exactly. It's not a new thing. Um, in this confrontation, this latest and most disturbing confrontation with the creature that he called um, and bound to himself by calling it, he now discovers that it has been calling him his whole life. And he's only now really begun to hear it. Um, but he still rejects it. He runs and he rejects it. And that seems at this point to be enough. We don't know the full power of this thing, right? Nor its full relationship to him. It's, it is a separate and independent thing. A shadow, a creature of unlife, a, a thing that has been summoned into this world. But it's also connected to him, right? Um, and it seems to me that his escape from it here can't be merely tied to his foot speed. This seems to be a question of will, a question of a choice that he is making. He's not able to escape permanently, right? He doesn't leave the shadow forever in the dust. Um, but the fact that he's running... The fact that he's resisting, that he does not yield, that he does not give in, that he does not stop, but that he labors on, even though struggling, right? It seems that these things are the reason that the shadow does not catch him, does not devour him in this moment. Um, and probably not just the head trauma that he is, because uh, uh, it would only be unreal head trauma that he would have uh, inflicted upon the creature. Um Yeah. Um, good. All right. Um, that brings us to the end of chapter six. We did two whole chapters tonight, which is unprecedented in our discussions. Uh, next week, we will look at the court of the Terranon uh, and uh, we will um, do. I'm going to try to do seven and as much of eight as we can. So make sure to read through eight uh, for next time. Um, I'm going to see if we can do both of those next week. So thanks very much, everybody. Uh, and uh I uh, uh, will see you guys next week. Good night, everybody. Bye now. I say goodbye, but I can't remember how to turn anything off. Oh, wait, here we are. Okay. <laughs> now I remember where things are. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.